We'll be in verses 19 through 24 of Philippians chapter 2. It is so good to be back up here with you, continuing on in the book of Philippians. Um, And whether you have any memory of all of the sermons from this series to this point or not, um, if you've just if you've just been around the church for a while and have a general familiarity with the Bible uh, and with Bible study resources, then you probably know that the book of Philippians is often referred to as the epistle of joy. Probably something you're familiar with. And that's the case because Paul uses the words for joy and rejoice more often and with greater frequency in this book than he does in any of his other letters. But even more striking than that is the fact that the epistle of joy, the epistle of joy is also one of what we call the prison epistles, meaning that Paul wrote this letter to the Philippians while he was a Roman prisoner between 60 and 62 AD. That means Paul is writing from a place where he spends all of his time chained to a Roman guard does not have the freedom to go where he wants to go or to do the things that he would like to do. The epistle of joy was written by Paul during a time where he was experiencing a great deal of persecution, even governmental persecution. And it was persecution he was facing specifically because he was being faithful to the gospel. Furthermore, it wasn't like he only had, had been a prisoner for a short time when he wrote this epistle. Um, the, the biblical evidence points to the fact that he has actually been a prisoner for quite some time while he is writing to the Philippians. We know that from contextual evidence and other places also that we know that uh, his presence as a prisoner has led to much preaching throughout the city, so it's been a while for that to be established. Uh, we know that some of his friends who were with him when he wrote Colossians and Philemon, Luke and and Aristarchus, are no longer with him. So he wrote those books first, and now this one's a little later. And we know that news of Paul's imprisonment would have had to have had enough time to reach Philippi, and then for money to be collected in Philippi, and then sent back to Rome with Epaphroditus, and we know that, that just the journey between Rome and Philippi, depending on the time of year, is four to seven weeks. So he's been in prison for a while. He's not just glibly pinning this on the first couple of days of his prison sentence. So it seems like Paul, by this point, has been a prisoner for a while, and yet it is at this time that he's been a prisoner for a while, he's written a few other prison epistles, that he writes now what we consider to be the epistle of joy to the Philippians. And it's, and it's not even just that he mentions words like joy and rejoice so frequently in this letter that makes it the epistle of joy. The overall tone that we see from the, from the apostle throughout the entirety of this letter is one of joy and thankfulness and gratitude. In a couple of places of, of warning, but the overall tone, we have this. And that's what we're going to see in the passage before us today. We're going to see a grateful and appreciative sounding Paul as he talks about his fellow laborer, Timothy. That's why In fact, this is why so many Christians throughout the centuries have been so encouraged by Paul's letter to the Philippians as they find themselves enduring various trials. They 
find themselves in the book of Philippians. Paul is joyful in his outlook on life, is joyful, and even though this situation is pretty bad by, by our sense, his tone is far from bleak and hopeless. And so as we, in our culture, as we see the screws of government-backed persecution beginning to tighten, even here a little bit in America, as we see this, then it makes sense to try to get a better understanding of what makes Paul tick. It's, it's becoming actually more and more necessary for us to see that and figure that out. Paul right now, as he's writing this, is living in the midst of the exact type of fear that most of us have about, the, about our future one day. He's living in the midst of what we fear is coming for us. We fear in America that we're going to start see what's happening in Canada with Pastor James Coates and his church. What we're seeing over there, we see it's just the beginning, and we can see that coming here eventually. We are told that we are going to get to a place where we're told that we're not allowed to meet as a church anymore, or possibly as the natural byproducts of the mindset behind the Equality Act. Eventually, we can see government shutting doors or putting up fences around faithful churches in this country and hauling off faithful pastors to prison just for speaking the truth of God's Word and not backing down themselves. If we're honest, this is where most of us see our culture headed. It is the logical destination of the road that we're on right now. And when we sit around and think about it, we can become discouraged or depressed. But Paul is already living that future. In this passage, in this, in this book, he's in chains. He's robbed of his freedom only because of his faithfulness in Christ. And so with that being the case, we're in a greater position than we have ever been before to read these words of Paul as we've been going through this letter to the Philippians and see just what it is that drives him to be joyful even while he is imprisoned. And we've actually already talked much about Paul's unshakable confidence in a sovereign God and the joy that he has in the gospel and indeed, there's a great joy and confidence that comes when the people of God trust that our sovereign God is always working out everything for His good purposes and for His ultimate good, and trusting that every single trial, every single trial is making us more and more like our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, what we want to be like, knowing that no matter what happens in this life, we, we know that no matter what happens in this life, despite what the culture is saying, we are on the right side of history. And that our God will bring this present world and the godless governments and leaders who have set themselves up against him to an end. And he'll do that in his good and perfect timing. We know that we can be assured of an eternity with God, free forever from the power of the penalty, the presence of sin, we know that that is coming. And those precious eternal truths, what we just sung about even to give us courage in the Ancient of Days song, those truths in and of themselves are more than enough to bring every faithful Christian to a place of deep abiding joy. But when we look at our passage today, 
We're going to see something else that explains Paul's joy. Paul is overjoyed as he looks around and sees the evidence of God working in the church. As he sees God working in the lives of others, even as he sits as a prisoner, he sees these things and it encourages him. He doesn't merely merely have to look ahead to a promised future hope for joy and thankfulness, although he does, and we've talked about that already. But even right now, he sees the first fruits of God's power working in his people. And even while in prison, he is able to take pleasure in in this little earthly taste of eternity, in the physical evidence that the curse has been reversed as he sees people growing into Christ-likeness. So since we are all in agreement that our culture is headed to a place that will no doubt mean greater difficulty for the faithful church of God, we also need to look around and be encouraged from the same evidences of the work of God that Paul sees and is encouraged by. It's not just that everything is going to work out in the end. It's that even right now, even right now, no matter how bad it looks, God is at work and supernaturally growing His church and doing amazing work in the lives of His people. We need to learn these principles from the life of Paul in this passage this morning, or we are at risk. Brothers and sisters, we are at risk of being robbed of a great deal of the joy and encouragement that we can have in this life as things continue to get worse and worse. We can't be like so many Christians in America who seem to have taken that that pandemic mindset and placed it into a spiritual level. So, So the same way that so many people responded to the coronavirus by essentially just sacrificing a year of their life and deciding that they're just going to hide from the world for a year and wait for things to get better. And the only thing that was getting them through that and keeping them from going insane was knowing that things are going to get better one day. And while that might be true, it still remains to be seen, well, that might be true, what many of them didn't realize or weren't taking into consideration was that while they're in hiding, while they're in hiding from this thing and waiting to come back. God is still powerfully moving in the world and in our church, and especially in this church, and doing so many exciting things that they're missing out on at the cost of their joy and their encouragement. And in a similar way, in a similar way, in a spiritual sense, many Christians have adopted that mindset to this world as they see the tides changing, and they see persecution growing, and things getting harder and harder for Christians. They have decided that the only place that joint encouragement lies in a culture like this is just in knowing that Jesus is returning someday. And while that is certainly a wonderful and encouraging truth that we need to latch on to, there is so much more joy and encouragement to be found in living a faithful life within the church, even while persecution grows around us. And we can see that in Paul 
as we hear his mindset in this passage that we're looking at today. Philippians 2, 19 through 24, let's read that together. Paul says, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth. How as a son with a father, he has served with me in the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. Even though we don't see the joy rejoice terms there, we see in this passage, in the mindset of Paul and how he thinks, and now he's talking about Timothy. We see how he is able to live the way he is able to live. What he looks forward to even now in his ministry. Today we are going to see from this passage four evidences of God's work in faithful ministry. Four sources of encouragement for every Christian amidst persecution. And we desperately need to pay attention to these principles This is how, this is one of the key ways how we will faithfully and joyfully be able to live our lives no matter how bad it might get in the future. Fifteen years from now, you're going to wish you paid more attention to this sermon today. Thinking through these things, thinking through these things we're going to talk about today and giving yourselves to them will help keep you from becoming the useless bomb shelter hermit type of Christian as things go from bad to worse in this culture. And they'll give you the type of productive, joyful ministry that we see in Paul, even if we end up in prison. But you need to know right now, you need to know right now that this joy, that this encouragement is only available to those who are actively involving themselves in the lives of others. So if that is something that scares you, that fear needs to die in you right now. Right now. It will rob you of encouragement and joy that God has for us. We all see Paul's exemplary joy and confidence during persecution, and it's something that many of us, right? Many of us have read Philippians and prayed for as we see this coming on the horizon. And I'm telling you right now that it does not come from only having great quiet times and a great prayer life. Those are good, but but it only comes as you give your life in love and service to and with others. So here they are, four evidences of God's work that will encourage every Christian during any trial. Four evidences of God's work that will encourage every Christian during any trial. I'll give them all four to you right now, and then we'll slowly walk through them. Number one, the sanctification of fellow Christians. Number two, the formation of kindred-hearted disciples. Number three, the proclamation of gospel partners. Number four, the aspiration of for true fellowship. Number one, 
The sanctification of fellow Christians. Look again at verse 19. The sanctification of fellow Christians. Paul says to the Philippians, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon so that I too may be cheered by news of you. Paul tells the Philippians that he is hoping to send Timothy to them. There is much in this section about the character of Timothy. And indeed, most sermons on this text, and maybe this is what you were expecting today too, use this as an opportunity to teach on the godly example of Timothy and the ways we should pattern our lives after his life. And, and that is, you can preach a very faithful sermon on this text by doing just that, and that is actually on Monday, the way I was initially planning on preaching this. And, and there is going to be a little of that in this sermon. But especially when we're thinking about and looking at the imprisoned Paul writing this letter, verse 19 that we just read shows us that while he clearly understands that t- sending Timothy will be a blessing to the Philippians... The purpose clause in this sentence shows that, shows that Paul also knows that this is going to be good for his soul. It's so that I too may be cheered by the news of you, that it will cheer him. That word that the ESV translate as cheered means to be made glad or to be encouraged. So Paul, Paul is anxious to send Timothy so that he can hear news of the Philippians. He wants to hear news of the Philippians. This this isn't just the the type of news about someone that you might read on a Christmas letter. That's not the news he's interested in. That's not what he's looking forward to. Not what he is wanting to hear. If we read the rest of this section... Um, what we're going to talk about next week, we know that, that at this time, Paul doesn't send Timothy, but he sends Epaphroditus instead. And he sends Epaphroditus with this letter that he's writing right now, that we're reading. So when Timothy gets to Philippi, Epaphroditus will have already delivered this letter, and they will have already have heard Paul's instructions to them about how they need to live, and, and his instructions that he has about some specific situations that come up in the next few chapters. He knows that this has taken place. And that's the relation to what he wants to hear. Look back at, at chapter 1, verse 27. Look what he says there. Remember, in, in, that, in that verse, which, which we have said before, is the central imperative of the first kind of half of the book, and, and one of the main themes of the book, this is what he says there. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Again, that's central imperative. So that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you, that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. You can tell in this passage, and especially as you read other places in the New Testament, just how much Paul loves Timothy. Paul loves Timothy, and what a joy and a blessing he is for Paul and his ministry. He sees him as a true son in the faith. And in fact, in 2 Timothy, that's the last chronological book that Paul writes, more than likely written just before his execution, Paul beckons 
Timothy to come to him quickly. Do your best to come to me quickly. Yet, Paul hopes to send this man away, true son in the faith, on what will be a four to seven week trip just to get there, and then another four to seven weeks back, not to mention how long he actually stays with the Philippians. He is willing to part with them for this long period of time. And for what reason? That he might hear firsthand from the man that he trusts the most, that the Philippian church is standing firm in one spirit with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, that they have read this letter and that they have responded through the obedience that leads to sanctification. That's what he wants to hear. This is what brings joy and encouragement to the faithful prisoner of Christ. His joy and his encouragement are completely tied up with being able to see the sanctification of God's people. And the amount of joy and encouragement that he receives from the Philippian sanctification is directly tied, is, is directly tied to the fact that he has invested so much time, energy, and prayer into their sanctification. So, as Paul actually faces the situation that most of us fear is coming, where his rights have been stripped away, where he is unable to do the things that he wants or minister in the way that he would like to. What he wants to know, what he wants to see, the thing that will encourage his soul, the thing that's worth parting with Timothy over is to know that the Philippians have heard his instruction from the epistle that he has written and that they are applying it and growing in faith. For those of you who are heavily involved in ministry, and especially if you have, got, have the opportunities to, to, to get involved in people's life one-on-one, -on -one, you know this joy. It is a joy that transcends trials and circumstances, and you, you just can't... You, at times when you, you just can't put the pieces together in your head of what God is doing in a particular situation, and how, how, how could he be working good through this? When you're in those situations, the ability to show up at church on Sunday and look around and see the products of the miracle of regeneration all around you, you know, you know beyond a shadow of a doubt that God is at work. No matter what's going on in this situation, God is at work. He is acting and doing the most impossible thing right now. He is taking people, people who once hated him, people who ran from him and people who rebelled against him, people who once had a stone heart and couldn't change if they wanted to, and they would never want to. He's taking those people, those people, and we can watch it all around us, and he's making them look more and more like Jesus Christ. No matter what is going on in your life, no matter how discouraged you are to be able 
to witness God doing this in the life of others brings a joy to your soul and it strengthens you to keep on going, to keep on fighting. And if like Paul, you have been granted the the precious privilege of being used by God as an instrument in his hands to help to bring about this miraculous change, well, that... That's it right there. That's why you exist. That's why we don't go immediately to heaven when God saves us. That's, that's That's your purpose. Your soul's purpose is to do that. That's our whole purpose for existing. And when you are seeing this regularly all around you, there is not a trial that God can ask you to go through that you won't be able to stand up in. When you really understand the the seriousness of sin and its power, the sin nature, the power of sin, and how no one can just no one can just overcome it unless God is working in and through them. When you know that, then you understand that, that you are seeing a miracle at work. When you walk around this building on Sunday mornings, on Wednesdays, and you're seeing what's going on in people's lives, supernatural power on display. So you can know that no matter what else might be going on that might make other circumstances seem dire, you know that God is at work. You know that he is at work. Maybe he's not doing what you want him to do over here, but there's no denying he's at work, and that is eminently encouraging. And not only that, not only that, but, but watching people whom you truly love, right? These people here whom you truly love, watching them be freed from sinful practices and patterns in their lives is such a joy in and of itself. Why? Because sin is a disease. It's a horrible, murderous sickness and illness. It ruins marriages and families and lives. And we long to see people rid of it. So of course, it encourages us to no end as we watch these people spiritually recover before our eyes from the debilitating effects of sin. It's just like when we watch people recover from a bad medical condition and get healthy. When we see someone we love recover from a serious, life-threatening illness, when we see that, it's like there's nothing in the world that can bring us down in that moment. When Diana and I, when we were in the delivery room with, with this last baby, there was a period of time where both Diana and the baby were in danger with some fairly, fairly serious medical complications that weren't expected. But once I knew, once we got a little farther down the line, and I knew that my wife and my newborn baby were going to be just fine. There was nothing you could have said to me that would depress me. Like there, was, there was actually at that time some logistical issues that next day that would normally have probably been a cause for anxiety in my life if I wanted it to be, but my wife and child were, were in danger, and now they're safe and healthy. How could that stuff possibly bother me? This is the same thing that happens if we really understand what sin is. 
And we really love our brothers and sisters in Christ. This is the same thing that happens when we see people who we genuinely love and care for and long to see the best for. When we see them free and healthy, free from spiritual danger and distress that comes through the deadly disease of sin, when we see that they are free from that, truly free, nothing can bring you down from that. My brother or my sister was being spiritually killed by sin, whether they knew it or not. Now they are free. They are free. Who cares if someone comes and arrests me for unjust reasons? You'll never take that joy away from me. So, point number one, we are encouraged, even in times of dark trial and despair, by seeing the miraculous work of sanctification taking place in our brothers and sisters in Christ. Point number two, the second evidence of God's work that should encourage us, no matter how hard things might get, is to see the formation of kindred-hearted disciples. The fellow Christians whom, whom you have helped to grow in their faith, and they have become closer to you than physical family. That's what I'm talking about here. So point two, the formation of kindred-hearted disciples. If we are going to be a church that continues to go about the work of the ministry joyfully when it gets more and more difficult to be a Christian, then we need to see a lot more relationships developing in this church that look like Paul and Timothy. And personally, you should ask yourself as we head into this point, are you developing relationships like this within the church? Timothy was a native of Lystra, and Paul meets him in Acts 16, which is just a, a little while earlier, just a few verses before he first goes to Philippi. Timothy goes with him. Timothy was a young disciple with a Jewish mother and a Greek father. Paul decided that he wanted Timothy to accompany him after being in Lystra for a while. But first, he had to have Timothy circumcised so as not to needlessly offend the Jews in those places around there who apparently uh, all knew that Timothy's father was Greek. That takes place in the first few verses of Acts 16. And then in Acts 16, 12, we see them arrive at Philippi, which is probably about 51 AD. So 51 AD, that's, that's a little more than a decade before he is writing these words that we see here. In, in the book of Philippians, about 62 AD. So in those 10 or 11 years, Timothy has gone from someone that Paul didn't even know to someone that he describes like this. Look at verses 20 through 22. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ, but you know Timothy's proven worth. How as a son with a father, he has served with me in the gospel. No one like him. He is genuinely concerned for your welfare. He seeks the interests of Jesus Christ. He is a man of proven worth. As a son with a father, he has served with me in the gospel. 
What has to take place in a relationship between two men for, for him to go from unknown to being able to describe him like this within a decade? This is what discipleship relationships look like. Paul, the more mature Christian, has been spending his life with Timothy, his life with him, teaching him the word, praying with him, involving him in ministry with him. So that now, 10 years after they meet, he has a man in his life that is like a son to him. Paul has built into the life of Timothy with so much of himself that he is confident that Timothy can go to Philippi and stand in for him. That, that Timothy can represent Paul faithfully. He is so close with Timothy that he's able to express this type of confidence in him. The word in verse 20 that's translated as genuinely means something along the lines of, of kindred hearts, or it literally means equal in soul. This isn't the only place that Paul talks about Timothy like this. In 1 Corinthians 4.17, when Paul is telling the Corinthians why he sent Timothy to them, look what he says to them. He says, write, write down 1 Corinthians 4.17, I'll just read it to you. My ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in every church. That's the relationship he has with Timothy. He entrusts Timothy to go and be his representative, not just in Philippi, but in a church that had the massive amount of problems that we know existed in Corinth. He says that Timothy will be there and he will remind you of my ways in Christ and what I teach everywhere in every church. Timothy knows those things. These kind of words by Paul about Timothy is only explainable by the type of discipleship relationship that we should all be seeking. If, is there anyone is there anyone whom you have walked with, building into their lives, teaching them everything you know? These are the types of relationships that will get us through any coming persecution, that's gonna, that are going to push us through any trial. And that when, type of relationships that when we come to the end of our lives, we will look back at the people who we gave our lives to. Watch them becoming godly husbands, godly wives, godly fathers and mothers, self-sacrificing church members, using their lives, who are now also using their lives to build into the lives of others also. We can look back at the end of our life and see that every moment we spent investing in that man or that woman was time well spent. An investment in heavenly banks that can never be destroyed. If you are giving your life to, if you are using your life, developing those, type, those types of disciples, every moment that you spend praying with them, helping them understand something from Scripture, training them how to make disciples themselves, and then watching them grow 
and do the same. Every one of those moments with that person will make it impossible for you to sink into discouragement. We are, during this time where it's not as bad as it's probably going to get, wasting a lot of time. The real difficult stuff is still probably in the future. We need right now to be making kindred-hearted disciples. Well, it is relatively much more easy to do so. We must be a disciple-making church right now. Who in this church are you being used by God to transform? To transform. Who, who is the beneficiary of everything that you are learning in your quiet times? Or the, the, the beneficiary of the notes that you are taking in sermons? Or what you're hearing in Bible studies? Or what you're reading and learning in good books? Is that just supposed to end with you? God has faithfully brought you to the place where you are. He has brought you through many trials where you have learned more about Him and that have caused you to draw closer to Him. Who in this church is benefiting from those lessons? Did God teach you these things through all of these trials and all of these lessons in your life just so you could die with what you learned while other people all around you in this building right now, await those same trials or maybe are going through them right now. Find them. As, as elders, we are really excited to see that our church is becoming a, a church that just loves being together. It brings joy to our hearts. Loves staying after church, seeing one another, talking to one another. But we've got to go past that even. Look around this room. God is, God is blessing this church with more and more people who, who see the infinite value in finding a faithful church and in building their life around it. More and more of our members are people who are coming from, from a ways away and then trying to move as close as they can because they want to be here. We need to start thinking about what those types of things mean for our future. Right now, you are, right now, as you're sitting here, you are surrounded by people that, as a church member, that you will probably spend the rest of your lives getting to know more and more. If there's 40 years left in your life, 30 years, 20, 10, 5, just a, just a few months, there are people in here younger than you younger in Christ, who you are going to know for that entire time. People who, by the way, as a member, you have committed your life to already. There are young moms and dads in this church right now who are in the middle, in the middle of making the same parenting mistakes that some of you older parents whose children have left, left home a while ago wish that someone would have warned you about when you were making them. They're here right now. They're doing it. I guarantee you they're in here. You might not know it because you just don't know them well enough yet. Again, people that you've committed your life to and that you've committed to love and to serve, are you just going to let them make those mistakes? God has placed you here with them. Find them. 
Invest yourself in them. Give your life to getting to know them and sharing in any areas of wisdom from the more and more experienced life that a good, from, from the more experienced life that a good and sovereign God has brought you through all the way up to this place where you now are in the same church as someone who needs to hear it. There are a bunch of people with young kids in the home who we don't know what we don't know. Right? We may think that we're doing a good job, but that's because we're comparing ourselves to other people who are doing a worse job. We need the older generation to speak into our lives, to keep us from making stupid mistakes that we don't need to make. But too many in the older generation are, are actually more concerned with trying to ha- hide how old they are instead of embracing God's high calling for the aged. But right now, there are so many churches out there right now who are doing everything they can to try and attract younger people and to be more relevant for them, and even bragging about how they have the youngest average age of church members. Churches where every pastor is, is 30 or younger. With, with what's co- Those churches are doomed. They're doomed with what's coming in this culture, with what's going on around us. There's no one there to inject the perspective of someone with decades of experience in Christian life to say, that is a terrible idea. Don't do it. It's a lot like this trend that happened back before you were born that you don't know about. It led to a lot of misery. Don't do it. Older generation, if you've got several months, five, 10, maybe 15 years left, grab a hold of some of these younger people and invest your soul into them to such a degree that you can say these same types of things that we see Paul saying about Timothy, these same types of things about members of this church, you'll be saying these things about them when you're taking your last breath. Wouldn't it be awesome if someone in this room who you don't even really know yet Maybe you maybe know their first name. You've seen them in the directory. They sit on the other side of the worship center, and they're pretty quiet. Wouldn't it be awesome if some younger fellow church member who you barely know right now stood up at your funeral and said, that man was like a father to me. Like a father to me. It's like we shared a soul. Make it your mission to have someone like that, a younger man, a younger woman in this church whom you can speak of like Paul speaks of Timothy here in this passage. Someone who you share your life with, who can watch you as you strive to follow Christ. Someone for whom every trial that they face in their life will never be as spiritually discouraging as it was for you because they were able to learn from you how to endure it by listening to you and watching you. Someone who gets close to you and can watch you live faithfully and even die faithfully because of that, able to pass down an even more Christ-like example to his own Timothy because he knows you. If you have that type of person in your life, you have several of them that you can speak of like this, can you imagine the joy and encouragement when you're seeing that in someone? 
when you're invested in people like that, do, do you think, older generation, as many in your generation are uh, stereotyped as, do you think you can really sit around being anxious and complaining about how bad the world has gotten, even if persecution gets even worse? Do you think that can describe you if you have a relationship like this in this life? It, it won't. It can't. You won't be like that because just you'll just, you'll just be like, look how gracious God has been in using my life for the growth of this person and for this church. If you're middle-aged, if you're a middle-aged person, start this now. Start this now. Who are, who are the people that you are building your life into? They're becoming your Timothy relationship. Get, get in the game now. There are people here who need more mature Christians influencing them, younger people. And since, since they are younger, they don't realize it. They don't know. They, they think they're good right now. They haven't hit that place yet. But you know, you know the way that that a new marriage or having a new baby shows you your sinfulness in a newer and more clearer way than you could have ever imagined. And you can start investing people and maybe help them to minimize that in their own life as much as possible. Invest your life in them. Bring them alongside. Show them scriptural truths that you clung to in difficult circumstances before they even get to those circumstances. Warn them of spiritual dangers and pitfalls that you wish someone would have helped you with. Help them to see how selfish they actually are before they have to learn the hard way. Pray with them. Read the Bible with them. Introduce them to formational books. Really young people, high school, college age people. You need to believe that you need other people building into your life right now a lot more than the other way around. You need to see yourself more in the Timothy spot here. Because right now, our country is, it is full of the ashes of broken lives and ruined churches that have come from the current obsession with placing young Christians in leadership roles way earlier than they ever should have been. So think of yourself more in the Timothy role. Embrace every opportunity to learn from older, more mature Christians. Seek those opportunities out. Don't let those people off the hook that I was talking about at the beginning of this point. Find them. Seek them out. I know for a fact, there's just no doubt in my mind, I would have been so much better off if I would have spent my college days getting involved in just one good men's Bible study at a good church than getting involved in the three or four college Bible studies that I was in. I needed those relationships. So all of us, Let's spend some time looking over these verses about how Paul viewed Timothy and ask yourself, where are those relationships in your life? Long for those relationships. Pray for them. Pursue them. And then give yourself to them. Give yourself to them, knowing that we are, we are talking about a relationship here in Paul and Timothy that grew for over a decade. So, so if it's a little awkward at first, just push through that. It's that important. If we had a whole church 
a whole church that was constantly forming disciple relationships like this, if this described hundreds of relationships within this church, if we, if we could all point to people like that in our own lives, can you imagine any trial ever showing up in this church that would send us into some kind of anxious panic? No way. No way. So we've seen how we can be encouraged by being, being so involved in the lives of others that we're able to rejoice as we witness their sanctification and the encouragement also that comes from the formation of kindred-hearted disciple-making. And quickly, I've got two more final evidences of God working during our times of persecution that, are good, that will encourage every true believer. Point number three, the proclamation of gospel partners. Looking at the proclamation of gospel partners. And here I'm thinking in terms of the other aspect of Timothy's ministry with Paul. Not that, not that he was only a disciple who, who, who Paul taught and saw as a true child in the faith. That was true. But he also saw Timothy as a partner in ministry. Right? You see that at the end of, of verse 22 here. You know Timothy's proven worth. I was a son with a father. He has served with me in the gospel. He has served alongside of Paul. Paul was able to find encouragement with Timothy, as he does with others in other places in the New Testament, uh, as he sees that there are other faithful ministers of the gospel around him, and he hears of them. Paul was able to find encouragement with Timothy, uh, as he does with these others. Even though Timothy was like a son to Paul, he was also his fellow servant and minister of the gospel. That's, what, that's how the, the book starts out, uh, the letter starts out. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. We can, we can take courage during times of trials and persecution because we know that we are not alone as we proclaim the gospel, as we, as we do Great Commission work. We can take courage as we see others around us doing it also. Whereas it can be endlessly discouraging trying to be a faithful Christian outside the church, not seeing anyone else faithfully evangelizing. I can, I can only imagine what faithful Christians who have spent their last year hunkered down in their home, the discouragement that they must have right now. It can be endlessly discouraging if we think we're the only ones faithfully evangelizing. Maybe, maybe, maybe trying to be one of those, those faithful Facebook, Twitter Christian soldiers defending the faith and sharing the gospel as you scroll through your phone alone on your couch. That's going to lead to discouragement. But when you're part of a church full of faithful, faithful fellow gospel proclaimers fighting the same battles you are, making the same stands that you are, and you can come in a couple of times a week and then even call each other throughout the week and hear their stories and they're the same as yours, it is a powerful, encouraging reminder that God is at work. Others are feeling the same things and sharing the same stories and you can encourage one another. So we need to seek out that encouragement by drawing close to other faithful church members, and we need to make sure that others receive that encouragement from us. So, so we go out from here, and we're faithful in the world, faithful in evangelism, faithful in our jobs, making faithful stands for Christ, 
Not, not only for the sake of doing those things, but also for the sake of the strengthening of the church as we come back and we share those things together. We, we need that. One of the reasons that the red team goes out in groups to do evangelism is because they're an encouragement to one another. Right? You, go, you might go by yourself and have a particularly negative conversation. You're like, I don't feel like doing that again. Maybe, or maybe when you just get there and you decide that, you know what? I remember last week. I don't feel like being hated by a stranger today. Maybe I'll just do something else. But, but as the red team goes out and they look around at their brothers and sisters in Christ, continuing on in faithfulness, bearing each other up, they're strengthened to keep going. We need that. We need to see that. We need to see each other faithfully serving and making sacrifices for gospel witness and proclamation. You need to see and hear it from others, and they need to see and hear it from you. So it's going to keep you going as, they, as there get to be more and more personal and social and even legal consequences for sharing the gospel. You need to know you're not in it by yourself. And on a similar note, looking for looking around and being encouraged by faithful gospel proclamation, follow what's going on with other faithful ministries, other faithful churches who are suffering in various ways for the cause of the gospel. I've heard from so many of you, even this last week, just how encouraged you have been as you've watched everything going on with, with Pastor James Coates in that church, as you've heard his interviews and you've seen his wife's interviews and how that's just encouraged you to keep going and to be faithful. Look at those faithful gospel proclaimers and, and also read Christian biographies. Look at Christian history. Look at the faithful examples of some of the great men and women of the faith and how they endured trials and persecution and, and they did it unlike anything that we have seen and take courage from them. When enduring various trials in ministry, for, for me, and just in, in living, and in, in, honestly, just living, trying to live a faithful Christian life in general, I am often reminded of the very first missionary biography I ever read on the life of William Carey. And, and as I think about him and his life and what he did and what he endured, I marvel at his endurance and faithfulness in much more difficult circumstances than I faced. And I can't help but be encouraged and emboldened to continue on. So that's, that's a third encouragement. We have to endure trials and persecution. And we, we're, to, we're to be encouraged by the faithful proclamation of other gospel partners. Fourth, fourth and finally, fourth point, be encouraged. Be, be driven to faithfulness by the recognition of and longing for true fellowship. No, point four, the aspiration for true fellowship. You will be spurred on to faithfulness as you recognize what true fellowship is and have an aspiration for it. So point four, the aspiration for true fellowship. Longing for true fellowship. Look again at those last two verses in the passage. Well, Paul says, I hope therefore to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. And Paul again says that he plans on sending Timothy to them but that he needs him there with him for a moment. And this leads into that next section that we're going to look at next week on Epaphroditus. But it shows again just how important he knows it will be for them to be able to have fellowship with Timothy again. 
Remember, they know Timothy and they love Timothy. And thus, Paul does not want to rob them of that joy and that encouragement that he knows will come to them if they can have fellowship with Timothy again. But Paul also says of himself that he longs to see and be with them. Look, look, so look back, uh, look at back at what he says about them in chapter 1, verse 8. Remember, it says, For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. Why? Why, why is this? Why does he long to be with them? Because he recognizes in them everything we just saw from the first three points. And he knows that these are the very people he needs to be around. They are going to be the ones who encourage him. Just look, look at verses 3 through 7 of chapter 1. And by the way, I promise you that I thought of the names of these four points in the outline before I went back and saw this in the text of 1, 3 through 7. But look and look at, watch as we read these verses again. In um, verses uh, uh, 3 through 7, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you always in every prayer of mine for you all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. Verse 5, we see the partnership in the gospel. Verse 6, we see the sanctification of fellow believers that he expects to see in them. Verse 7, we see that, 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 that I hold you in my heart, the, the kindred-hearted disciples. Maybe not at the same level as Timothy, but similar sounding words being used to describe his affection for them. These are the people that he longs to be with. These are the people that we need to long to be around all the time, that we yearn to have fellowship with. If you're spending your time with these type of people, with faithful disciples, if this is who you are building your life around, and, and even sacrificing to make sure that, that you are able to be close to them. You are going to handle trials much better. It will be so much more difficult for trials and for persecution to overtake you. Remember, they are four to seven weeks of travel away from where Paul is right now. And as soon as he is released from prison, what is he saying? He says, I'm getting to you. He says, I, I trust the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. So if the Lord has other plans for me, then I won't make it. But it is my intention, my full intention to travel those 700 plus miles to fellowship with you, to be with you as soon as I can. And he needs to, he needs it because Paul has a lot more persecution coming. He has a martyrdom coming up. And he needs to be encouraged through the wonderful evidences of God's grace in the lives of fellow believers. Beloved, Jesus Christ is 
returning one day. And on that day, all evil, all wickedness will be undone. And every trial, every awful thing that you have lived through, all the persecution that you may have endured, will only on that day serve the purpose of making eternity better for you. And that is our great and certain hope. And it is a truth that we need to continue to see the world through. But even during this life, beloved, even during this life, in, in the, these days that are constantly filled with more and more potentially discouraging headlines and the promise of, of future trials and even persecution, God has graciously given you a spring of endless encouragement to make it through these days, to refresh you in these days by placing you front and center and even making you a part of the great work that he is doing in and among his people, in and among the church. So if you are rightly thinking about these things, if you are so involved in the church that you are watching the miracle of sanctification in the lives of many people, if you are giving yourself to the formation of kindred-hearted disciples, investing your life into the patient task of spending years building your life into another, if you're looking around at and, and standing shoulder to shoulder with and praying for faithful gospel partners that God has placed around you, and if you recognize the gift of true fellowship and you yearn for it, and you sacrifice to have it, brothers and sisters, I promise you, no trial, no amount of coming persecution will be able to rob you of that joy or allow you to slip into discouragement. Until the day of our Lord's return, God has given us the precious gift of the church being the church for the great encouragement and joy of the church. Let's pray. Father, thank you uh, so much for this word in, in Philippians. And thank you for the life of the Apostle Paul and what we can see in him and learn just in the way that he speaks and what motivates him. Oh, that's what we need so bad, so bad right now. Lord God, I pray that you will make us into a disciple-making church. It doesn't find their joy in the things that they're looking most forward to, and all of the silly, worldly things that bring smiles to the faces of unbelievers. But in watching the supernatural work of God and His people, we had longed to be a part of that and be around it as much as possible. We would be a disciple-making, gospel-proclaiming church that loves and clings to the gift of true fellowship. We pray all these things in the name of the Savior, 
who bought us with his blood to make us a family, to make us his people. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.